you look, as you look, the hen peck has said, rock a me, rock a me, uno te, let a rocola star, key, lay a lampasto, utu o hagado, tami locus on a new, may alex on a new, maz only a lampae, baboishemo hagado, it is. And for the land as well. And for the land. And Praise God. So it is uh, the tradition of our people, uh, as followed by the Master, to uh, bless and thank God for the food before we eat. But it is a command of the Holy One, blessed is He, after we eat, to bless God that we might not be filled and forget Him. Amen? Amen. Well, this is uh, spectacular. It's great. We're only... Nine minutes late, there'll be misva points deducted from all of you who were standing four minutes ago. That's, uh, that's about it there. So uh, by way of announcements, uh, for those of you who did not have the opportunity, was there anybody that was not here for the, uh, for the tour service? Is this like the first? This is the first. Everybody was here to pray. Was everybody was here to pray? Everybody was here. Glenna snuck in late, but everybody was here to pray. <laughs> God bless you for coming. Well, this is, I think, a first. Is it not for Bella Torah that everybody who came to pray, I mean, everybody who came to study the Torah now also came to pray? That right. brings, God bless you. God bless you. Uh, so I don't, I don't think there's any reason then to uh, repeat any of the announcements. Uh, I, announcements? Announcements? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, Rick. Uh, for those of you who have been praying for Dale Huggins, yes. my brother, is uh, he was let out of the hospital a week ago, went to Baylor for rehab, and they have now released him from Baylor as well. He can speak, he can, and he was absolutely speechless. He could not speak. He, is, he can speak, he can write his name. He has not been able actually to use his right hand for a long time. So he's, up, he's still in therapy, but he's been he's no longer there permanently. So. Praise God. Uh, Praise God. Praise God. Thank you for sharing that. Amen. Thank you. Good, good, good. Uh, for those of you who've been praying for this uh, yes, man, you know what? It's not an announcement; it's a request, probably about the songs. If we could um, somehow come together, and maybe get another paper, a newer paper, an update of the songs we sing in the morning service. It's really helpful. Okay. Okay. And you want those transliterated yes. into yes. English? Okay. No problem. I'm sorry? Second that, yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, um, you know, a lot of people listen to my voice. And on some of those songs, you want to be listening to somebody else. Because I, I, I think I hurt my lip today just trying to get some of those vowels to come out. But we will do that. We'll do that, Juliana. I wonder if we could ask you once again to bless the community as you did the first time with that piece of paper. Okay. Any other announcements, requests? 
Anybody pregnant? I mean, just, uh, just uh, last time. Last last time it just went on and on and on and on. That's right. Are there any more people pregnant? It's funny that you should bring that up. Just, just check. Just say. Just say. Just say. All right. Well. Um, for two things for, for my family. For those of you who are praying for my family, I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that uh, I could not be more grateful. And uh, many of you have come up to me and uh, shared uh, your, your prayers and uh, your concern. And uh, praise God for community. Amen. 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 Um, as, uh, as I shared with the men on Tuesday night, and Lewis, who was listening from afar. Um, my family's moving towards a little bit more of a, uh, an, an extraordinarily conservative uh, Shabbat experience. Uh, leaving the lights on, not turning the lights off. And, uh, that's about it for now. Um, but if you would continue to pray for us... Um, we're excited. We're excited about what God's going to do and uh, how we can please Him more through our obedience. Um, but uh, as I said at the uh, end of the prayer service, we're trying to uh, accommodate those of you who have a stricter halakha than our family does. Because um, I, I still don't have any problem pressing the button that says coffee and getting my coffee, but some of you do, and, and that's cool. That's what Bellator is all about. There's no standard of halakha other than guys got to be wearing pants. Wow. <laughs> Even in the summertime. And, uh, you know, I think there's a couple other things. Like, if you want to get called up to read the Torah, you got to have a kippah on and you got to have a tallit. Other than that, there's we'll no. And we share, right. Uh, and by the way, for those who were sharing my tallits, uh, outstanding. It was like, good, good, good. Yeah, so we do have a, uh, a tallit shop from which you can, can borrow and test in a rental yeah, it's a uh, it's a no cost rental, um, but again, I, I'm, the beauty of our, our community is that it doesn't matter what your halakha is. But nobody's going to ding you because day. it's too low, and nobody's going to look at you like you're nuts because it's too high. Nobody's it's also going to ding you if your songs are too low or too high either. I'm oh. gonna I'm, unless you're the cousin, unless you're the cousin. But didn't he do a great job today? <laughs> Anything anything else before uh, my godly son-in-law comes up to lead us in what had, it's, I mean, it's just an, an unbelievably extraordinary portion. By the way, how many of you know that there's a lady in our community who leads the teaching of her children into making foodstuffs for us that actually apply to the portion. How many of you know I there's a lady? Okay, you do. Okay. So you need to ask her why we were eating carrots, or what looked like carrots, which were great, by the way. you got to um, name her name. Yeah. It is the venerable and honorable Mrs. Upham. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bushes at I, I was, I was going to bring that up. You need to ask her about the burning bushes. And I thought she had too much wine. No, it's true. 
Not that she had too much wine, but that she forgot the burning bushes. She actually made little burning bushes cupcakes with melted... You need to ask her. It's unbelievable. So praise God. What an unbelievably godly example to all of us. Yeah, flambe. Right? Anything else? We're all good? Oh, the cheap seats. I'm coming back there with you. Come on. Oh, is this all full of everything? Of course I am, sweetness. Here I come. All righty. We are... Um, Digging into the second book, um, for those Shemesh. of you, Shemot, which means names, for those of you who like a good story, um, we had it to be continued at the end of Bereshit or Genesis. Joshua, before we get into Shemot, because we all work here as a community, maybe we can end, end, uh, yeah, maybe you could read the, the last, we should. why don't you read the last verse of, uh, Bereshit? Okay. Well, yes, we will. We will, but we should read actually a few extra verses because that particular section is really cool. Not much. Um, Joseph. This is verses chapter. This is chapter fifty, verses twenty-four through twenty-six. The last three verses of the of the um, chapter, the book, um, which is just about what the mafia is. It's a little bit less than that. Uh-uh. Joseph said to his brothers, "I am about to die, but God will surely remember you." Remember that phrase. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph adjured the children of Israel, saying, When God will indeed remember you, then you must bring my bones up out of here. Joseph died at the age of 110 years. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And we all say together, Which is, be strong, be strong, to maybe be strengthened, which is the biblical way of saying to be continued, dot, dot, dot. So we see, as we move into the Exodus and Shemot, the situation is unsettled. Um, God has promised to give the people of Israel a land, and now they're not in that land. They're in a foreign land. And this foreign land um, has been actually pretty nice to them, mostly because one of their own helped save the land, Joseph. But as we saw at the end of, of uh, Bereshit, as we see at the very beginning of Shemot, Joseph has now died. Um, you know, it's amazing. One of the things I've talked to some people about the Midrash, if you're interested in what this giant, huge book is, this is commentary on the first half of Exodus. You need to remove the stickers so that we don't think it's his. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, and the sages of Israel, whose commentary is in this, the Midrash literally means like, kind of like drawing out stories, essentially, um, commentary on the scriptures. And one of the things that I love about the Midrash um, is that basically the sages of Israel who have studied the scriptures from Bereshit, actually not to Malachi, because there's a in different order, end of Second Chronicles, um, they are always they've they've learned it so well that they learn to look for the weird things, the little the little tiny details that make you go, now why is that there? Um, sometimes uh, it's, it leads into a really interesting story. Sometimes it leads into this long rabbit trail of discussion on topic. Well, at the very beginning of this one, they spend like six pages in the first three verses of Shemot. Because it turns out, believe it or not, Exodus, the first few verses, are not just repeating what you already know to set the stage. It's not the last time on Torah study. Da, 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 da. It's actually giving you new information, but it's coded. It's deeply embedded in the, in the passage. Um, one of the very first things that stands out in the in the very first verse, it says that the, the names of the children of Israel who are coming to Egypt with Jacob, 
Now, the sages look at that and they go, okay, duh, we know they're with Jacob. That We, we knew that last, chap, last book, that's kind of been the theme for the last 20 chapters. Why do we have to say they're with Jacob? Et Yaakov in Hebrew. And they say, one explanation is that Et Yaakov means that the son, his sons were like Yaakov. They, they, they followed his lead, so to speak. They followed his inspiration. They followed his righteousness. And then, so that leads into this whole long discussion. Well, wait, is that normal? Is that this naturally happened? And they say, no, actually. In fact, we have a whole long list of really great guys, really impressive Zadikim, whose children end up being complete disasters. They ask the question, well, why is that? And they run through the list. You know, they talk about David. They talk about with, with uh, Absalom. They talk about Ishmael and, and Avraham. They talk about Yitzhak and Esau. It's like these are these are paragons, and that their kids, well, at least one son or, or whatever, is a mess. And they go back to Proverbs and they talk about um, sparing the rod. And they say that you know he who spares the rod spoils his child, and so on and so forth. So they basically the idea is going to be discipline, harsh discipline, even if necessary, to get your kids to do what's right. And the question in, um, that the sages go is, that just sounds mean. Like, why, why would you do that to your kid? Sparing the rod? They, they equate beating your kid with the rod to, like, taking away their livelihood. Like, it's that serious. Like, it's a huge deal. It's like, why would you do that? Well, they say that the reason why you do that is because um, otherwise, in the end, you may have to take away their livelihood. And they take the example of Abraham and Ishmael. Um, Abraham, unfortunately, um, was not as just a tough a disciplinarian on Ishmael as he was with Isaac. And as a result, uh, Ishmael turns to idolatry. Well, when Israel, Ishmael turns to idolatry, um, eventually it gets so bad that Sarah comes to Abraham and says, send them out. They cannot inherit with my son Yitzhak. They're going to be a bad influence. You've got to make them leave. And so Abraham sends them away with water and uh, bread uh, for the journey. And the sages go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Abraham is super wealthy. And he sends his firstborn son out of the house with nothing. So that goes back to the same idea. Because he didn't discipline him growing up, in the end, he ends up having to punish him because he's no longer worthy to inherit. On the flip side, they then look at, um, they have all sorts of cool little, like, you know, uh, commentary loop from Psalms and Proverbs and whatever else to argue that, like, on the flip side, that someone like Isaac was disciplining Jacob. And Jacob really learned from Isaac, and so therefore he inherits. And they say that if you discipline your kids, um, even, even sometimes in a painful way, the end result will be that they will actually end up loving and respecting you more, which is kind of counterintuitive, but that's actually what um, the scriptures teach. As it says, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, and the great thing is, God is merciful. We see that with Ishmael. In the end, Ishmael repents. But it's not a guarantee Esau did not. So the, uh, the point is to say that um, you got to start, start young, start tough if necessary, and, you, and the goal is the end product. The goal is not that you always have a happy childhood. The goal is that you be a righteous and godly adult. Um, and we see with, with the beginning of this passage that that's apparently, in spite of the, some of the mess that Jacob's family has, that's the end result. The end result was he had righteous sons. At the end of the story, they were good guys. They followed his lead. Um, if you may notice that there's one more quick thing, and then we'll jump in with any comments. And feel free to raise your hand, and I will call you up. Um, they, uh, the next thing they list is all the names of these guys. And if you are like me, you may be going, read quickly, read quickly, read quickly. We've seen these names how many times? 
especially in the last few chapters. But no, of course, the sages are not looking at this and going, well, that's boring. Let's just skip that. They're looking going, why are they naming them again? And they're in a weird order. So they go, oh, this is really exciting. So let's see what they mean. So they start digging in. They go, this is a code. The whole thing is a code about the Exodus. And they start naming every single guy. And if you look, read through your, um, if you have a Midrash Rabbah or if you want to you know, scan through this with clean hands after we're done today. Um, and if you're hard. You can, uh, you can see, I've got it open to that portion. And it's amazing. They talk about Reuben. His, his name literally means behold a son, see a son. And they say, and God saw their affliction. The next name is Shimeon, or to hear. Um, Shimon, and they say, and God heard their cry. And he goes, they go through all 12 kids naming this, and this applies to this, this applies to this. The coolest one, though, I thought, um, had to do with, Yo- with uh, Joseph. Joseph's the last one listed. He's already in Egypt. And let's see if I can find exactly what they're trying to get at with that one. Uh, where it is. Okay. Joseph, on account of that which uh, with the Holy One, blessed is he, will in the future, once again, Joseph has to do with abundance or repetition. So it's about like having more. So in the future, he will, uh, uh, Hashem will once again redeem the people of Israel from the wicked kingdom of Esau, just as he redeemed them from Egypt. Amen. As it is written, it shall be on that day, this is from Isaiah 11, 11, that the Lord will once again, Yosef, show his, show his hand and that entire matter that is written there. So in other words, they go through all 12 names and the last one is not about the one redemption we're reading now, it's about the next one. Mm-hmm. And throughout the scriptures, you'll see that there's that pattern. They, they want to they emphasize what happened to the fathers pretends to the children. So as we read this, and as you guys are digging into this one, um, really keep your eyes open, because this redemption is going to happen again, and there's a very good chance it could happen in your lifetime. It's a really good thing to be paying attention. So, Hallelujah. Colby, did it you see? happen right now. Amen. We're right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um... um one of the of the views on why they don't why they mention the names twice because it doesn't seem like it's necessary is that it's like Hashem's term of endearment. Mm. So because he loved them so much, he felt um, he was showing like an endearment to mention their names twice. And then second is a lot of the sages tend to this whole first verse they relate Jewish um, like sons of Israel to stars. Yeah, and that they're like on the outside, they're very shiny and bright and light up dark places and things like that. But that they're all individuals on the inside. So it's that mm. they all have names, which would in Hebrew, like every name means something. Um, so in outside, they're all shiny and bright. Inside, they're all different and special and unique. And then it says, "What are the four virtues that the children of Israel merited to be redeemed from Egypt?" And the first one is that in the Egyptian exile, they didn't change their names. Ah. And they stayed true to their names that they were given in cool. a very Jewish sense. They didn't change their names. So. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, they, they, they did the star thing because they say, what else does God give names to? It says in the scriptures, he named, calls the stars by their names. Very cool. Yes, Dad? Uh, Lori's behind you. Maybe she's oh, first. Lori. Give me a hand up for Go ahead. Okay. Um, kind of along that line. We read the last couple of verses of Genesis, and somebody pointed out, like, remember the word, God will remember you. And I presume someone's going to jump on this later, but let me just jump on it now. Because <laughs> um, it goes with what Kobe said, is um, there are a couple words to remember in Hebrew. Um, 
The car is modernly used for remember, and I think that's, that's also used in scripture. Mm-hmm. More commonly for remember, there's another word that's used in this context specifically that's takat. And that's a really cool word because that's. How do you spell? Account. Um, Same thing okay. as. Uh, Pikudim. Okay. Pikudim, exactly. That's okay. what I mentioned. That's the, the part that's coming up a couple weeks, months, will be Pikudim, which is, in that sense, it's translated these are the countings, these are the reckonings in the book of Israel. Okay. So in that sense, remember, it has a, it has a very specific, precise term to it. Ah. It's almost like an accounting term. Okay. So I think it's like hmm, when Hashem names the children of Israel, he calls them all by name, like the stars are all called by name. They're, they're numerous. They're just, they're just countless to us. You know, but he knows each one by name. Yeah. He counts each one. So in that sense, he remembers Israel because they multiply like the stars of the heavens and like the sand of the sea, but he knows them all by name. He, all, he, remember, he remembers each one. So. And it's kind of like I think about like remembering. I think if you if you read that and you think of it from a human perspective, you ask the question, "Did God forget?" That seems kind of odd. That's not true. But in light of that, that's really cool because it's almost kind of like like a kid counting down to his birthday. You know, it's like on the day of, he's going to remember it's his birthday. Now he's been keeping track of it. It's that same day every year, and he knows when it's going to be. Just like that, when uh, as we get into the Exodus or, uh, into Shemot and get into the story, you'll find later on that that it says that to the very day. God brought them out of Egypt. So we see that Hashem has been pinpointing this particular point in time. Um, and, and that he is keeping track of it. He didn't lose track of it, but at the right time, he remembered. That's cool. I like that. Yes? Uh, well, I mean, I thought you started it really well because uh, right off the bat, we might be able to read Exodus as a Bible story mm. um, and, and, be, and benefit a lot from it, mm-hmm. as, as many have. But the sages didn't read it as a Bible story. And, and the Passover story, as wonderful as it is, is a constant reminder in Judaism for a reason. And it's not because of what happened, but what will, what, what will happen. Because the sages, and if you, if you have a commentary in Midrash Rabbah does it as well, throughout, throughout uh, this first portion, there are uh, innumerable messianic references that sages pick up on, and they make the entire portion a about a future redeemer mm-hmm. and to the point where where even Moses and in Moses comment to say well uh, you just do whatever you're going to do send whoever you're going to send is actually a reference to the Messiah and Moses <laughs> saying look don't send me I mean I know that I'm going to be insufficient send the Messiah to do this because mm-hmm. he'll do it best mm-hmm. and 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 God gets angry with him because what we what we need to recognize is God lays down patterns because we're very dense sometimes, <laughs> and we need to see the patterns to understand. And the patterns are played out the same, yeah. so we can see the pattern being laid out in this first portion is the pattern that we will see in the future, and in the present with the per- with the person of Messiah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we have we have one camp like Christianity that is that has taken things like I am that I am. And immediately gone to John and say, look, Jesus says I am when they ask him a question. So he's equating himself with God. And unfortunately, this, the, the conclusion is correct, but the method was incorrect. <laughs> Judaism does exactly the same thing on the opposite side. When we see the very pattern being laid out in the first portion of Exodus, declaring a divine redeemer. 
And mm-hmm. Judaism then immediately says, no, no, we can't have a divine redeemer. Mm. It's impossible. The only redeemer that's divine is God. And both sides have, have, have misplayed the very thing that we're being revealed in this portion, which is not only a present redeemer, mm. Moshe, as the portion lists, but also a future redeemer who is the Almighty himself mm-hmm. in human form. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the two camps squaring off each other, against each other have actually done a disservice to one another. They've misquoted, the Christian camp has misquoted, stupidly saying, I am? That's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the Hebrew is not what that's saying. Mm-hmm. And yet on the reverse side, Judaism has taken the very clear teachings throughout the Tanakh about a a divine redeemer that God will send in the future and has negated them because it doesn't fit their orthodox I should I say shouldn't say orthodox it doesn't fit their tradition their, no it doesn't fit their dogma and I use that word exactly <laughs> like it means it's their dogma there's no proof it's just what we believe hmm. Jews don't have beliefs except that one hmm. yeah and it's interesting because we, we were talking last night about um, Hasidic Judaism uh, plays with the, with the concept where like the Hasidic Messiah um, is so mystical and so unique, so elevated that it's to the point where it's almost confusing. Like it, they don't say he's divine, but it almost seems to be a matter of semantics. He does everything almost just like God, but he's not God. So, yeah, um, yeah. We we see throughout the pattern. I mean, if you if you were praying this morning with us, and I think everyone in this room was, if you were awake and paying attention while you're praying, which I hope you were, um, the uh, the second um, stanza in the Shmonius Ray uh, is about God being the Savior, the Redeemer, so on and so forth. And it actually comments that He sent the Redeemer in its proper time, um, or He sends uh, consistently. And we see that with Moshe here is the first Redeemer, and then Yeshua later, and, and Paul Shaul gets onto that, going back to the counting and keeping track of the time. Paul says, speaking of uh, Yeshua, that he again was born in the proper time. So God's got this this massive plan all laid out, and the pieces are going just like they're supposed to. Um, one of the things about this passage that's so cool, by the way, if you, I hope that as you read through this, you get excited because Exodus is exciting because Exodus is at its core, um, it's a revelation of Hashem. Like one of the things I spoke with a, I spoke with a, a Jewish. Um, I don't know if he was officially a rabbi necessarily at the time, but he was an assistant to one of the rabbis in Israel. So he's very learned, very up there. You know, he's kind of a spokesperson for, for that particular um, study group. And uh, he was talking about um, Exodus, and he says that you know people get like you said, it's a story. You know, it's a cool story. We have little flannel graphs, we have picture books, and we have a big meal. You know, whatever else, and people get lost in the story element of it. And he really focused on the idea that this is the revelation of Hashem. Nowhere in history before the Exodus did God choose to overrule the laws of nature for a people. Amen. He does it for individuals with Abraham getting having a child late and so on and so forth. The small, the smaller miracles that you only would see if you were right there. But on this one, it's a grand display. This is a declaration that Hashem is king, and there is nothing outside of him. And so when you read through this book, I hope that you keep your eyes open to learn more about God, because this whole book is about, like, it's about his kingship. It's about his sovereignty. It's about his power, because he is squaring off head-to-head, toe-to-toe with 
a pharaoh who thinks he's way up here, but he's this puny little guy who just gets absolutely stepped on. But at the beginning, it looks like it's a master chess match, and it's only as you keep reading you find out that Hashem's actually moving both sides of the pieces. <laughs> I, would, uh, I, I agree with you 100% that we should start to read this particular book with that in mind. Mm-hmm. That God is sovereign. That he is the king, and he is in charge. I, absolutely. But I think that one of the... the um, one of the things that the visible representation of the church today has forgotten is what is also brought out in this story, and that is that God chose a people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And today, according to those in the visible representation of the church, in general, the fact that God chose the Jewish people means nothing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything to be chosen because you still have a place in the world to come even though God chose you. I do because I chose God. I mean, it's really the, the most backward thing <laughs> you can think of. But we need to remember that as we're reading through here. He remembered. He remembered mm-hmm. them. He remembered his mm-hmm. covenant mm-hmm. with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He remembered and he chose them. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, he stepped into our history mm-hmm. and redeemed his people. Absolutely. I mean, Exodus 6, 6 and 7 are the four I wills that we drink to on Passover. We are reading this story because he chose that people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Behind you. Oh, yes, Lord. Just to add on to that, I think it's really neat because the way God describes that of himself, he says, I will descend. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's not yeah. just like... He's going to just poof through things from afar, but he, like, he does. Puts himself into it. He led him out with an outstretched hand. And to that point, if you read the Haggadah, they emphasize, I think that maybe also in the scriptures, but they really highlight it to say that it was Hashem himself, not an angel, it was not an emissary that rescues them out out of Egypt, but Hashem himself, going back to your comments, Dad, about the Messiah also being divine, because... The, the first redemption portends the last redemption. It is Hashem himself that makes the redemption. Moses is used to some degree, but he never pretends to be the one who's saving Egypt, uh, them from Egypt. It's always God specifically. Pete? The Yalta Rebbe says that that is something we can meditate on to develop a, a more love of Hashem. Mm. Is to meditate both on how disgusting Egypt is <laughs> and how far Israel had fallen spiritually and in contrasting that with how great Hashem is hmm. how holy Hashem is and then to pair those together to see how how powerful our beloved is that Hashem himself right. descend into Egypt for absolutely. absolutely yes sir uh, to, uh, to echo what Lori said, which I guess we're going to be doing throughout the it is a fact that as you, as you pointed out God makes it clear that he redeemed them personally mm-hmm. um, and we read in the apostolic scriptures uh, for those who are you know, kind of curious about whether or not Yeshua is actually divine if he's actually God the, the scriptures are, are clear that the rock that went with them Mm. was Mashiach. But the one who went with them, as you pointed out, was not an angel, but was God himself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get into um, <laughs> we get into uh, in this particular chapter. You talk about the, where, how far Israel had plunged. Um, tradition holds that there are fifty levels on kind of like either uh, uh, like fifty levels, I guess, sort of on either end of like good and bad. Correct me if I'm totally this off. This isn't from Dante. This is um, Yeah. So in this case, uh, Israel has descended to level forty-nine of this, the evil side. They've 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 plunged into idolatry. They've plunged into all sorts of of, of immorality and whatnot. And um, and they uh, and it's interesting because there's actually um, a point uh, where there's a really odd like weird Hebrew phrase here. Um, and I think it's the one where it says crushing harshness, that the Egyptians enslaved them with crushing harshness. And one of the sages actually says, they did it with, they did it with, how do you, he says it something like in the Midrash, something to the effect of like, they did it with gentle pleadings. And you're like, crushing harshness is gentle pleadings? What does that even mean? And the point that they're trying to get at is that they tricked them. They deceived them. Oh, I just totally stole your no, point. Not quite. Okay. Um, and so... But if you keep going, you might. Oh, yeah. Um, I can pause for a second if you want to take it from there. Okay. So um, they, uh, <coughs> they deceived them. And um, by deceiving them, they got them into working for them. And then, then they delivered the knockout blow. They got them into that. And really, if you look at throughout the history of, of Israel, the Jewish people, unfortunately, this is repeated over and over and over again. They is this your point? Am I getting to your point? No, no. Okay. They get over and over and over again that um, they they would descend into evil. They would try to assimilate into the people that they're living among, and then those people would deceive them and then turn them over. And uh, I got a I had a really powerful and tragic opportunity to go to. Um, well, it wasn't tragic to be there, but it was tragic to see what I saw. Uh, the the Jewish Museum in Berlin. Um, Berlin, of course, is the you know the house of Nazi Germany. Um, and you know, it was sort of like one of the locations where the you know the Holocaust is sort of crafted in the minds of the men who were leading Germany in the in the 1930s. And um, in the Jewish Museum in Berlin, they they point out that during World War One and in, in, in the immediate years after that, that uh, the German Jews had totally assimilated. They had Christmas trees. They were baptized. They were joining the the, the Lutheran Church, and they they were fighting in the German army. So as the Holocaust started and there was more and more hintings and, 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 and possibilities that the Germans were turning on the Jews, there were lots of Jews that were like, I'm not even Jewish, I'm German. I don't even, like, what's the deal here? But it didn't matter. In the end, they went through and systematically found every single Jew that they could and they either killed them, stole their stuff, put them in prison, and that's the reality that we live in. The tragic, the tragic thing is that... Um, the more that God's people try to fit in with the world, the more that they end up just simply setting themselves up for tragedy later. That's exactly, because if you think about it, this is what happens to us. What happens when you start with a temptation? The temptation doesn't come to you and say, you know, if you do this with me, I guarantee you it's going to feel awesome, and then for the next 30 years of your life, you're going to regret every day of it. <laughs> no, it doesn't do that. It comes to you, it doesn't start with crushing harshness. It starts with, with gentle deception starts off by saying, it's not, really it's not that bad. It, it could, you'll recover from it. it, it well, it, it could be bad, but not if you do it this way. Or maybe it's bad for them, but not for you. Everybody get over it. Yeah, it, they, it's all about, they manip, no it manipulates you. No one will ever you. know. No one will ever know. They always manipulate you. And, and of course, if you've ever, if, you, if those of you who maybe spent time in the Christian church, you may remember the phrase, something like, sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go. Mm -hmm. Sin will keep you there longer than you ever thought you'd be there. And sin will make you do things you never thought you'd do. 
And that's exactly what happens. And that's what happened to the people of Israel here. They got deep, too deep. They got deceived, and then they got enslaved. Yes, sir. Okay. Let's see how different this is. But, um, <laughs> well, at least um, Lori didn't say first. <laughs> um, maybe Nachman's in the point about Pharaoh tricking them. He said the reason that Pharaoh says in the portion, uh, let us deal wisely with them, is because um, the people of Israel had, had brought their level of uh, godliness and just Torah observance to, you know, really high heights, which is why they're so prolific and you know, oh, okay. blessed okay. Um, with having children, because they were, they were you know, doing everything they, they, could, they could do. And so he tricked them. He, 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 uh, he went to them and said, we can't spend all your time studying Torah. Go out and work for a living. Go out and, you know, do something with your time other than study Torah and, and keep the commandments. Mm. Um, and to your point, that, that's how he tricked them. And, and then um, uh, Rabbi Nachman goes on to make the point that he, the Pharaoh eventually had them build the, the cities of Ramesses and... Piton. Piton, that one, that one yeah. And that, but they constantly collapsed. And right. he likened it unto... You know, an actual your your life to say if you don't build your life on something strong like the Torah, what, the rock, yeah, the rock, your uh, your the, the cities you try to build of your achievements or or anything will, will eventually collapse if you don't mm-hmm. build it on something strong. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, built that house on sand. Very cool. Unless your house be built upon rock, you labor in vain. Right. Yeah. God doesn't bless the bless the work. <laughs> Absolutely. Gregory. And one of the things I was struck by is you were talking about how far they descended and how much they got involved with Egypt. It just seemed like this year it stood out to me that like they didn't really have to do much for God to respond. Mm-hmm. It was like, it's true. What, like one rabbi put it like, all they said was like, ouch. And that just showed like how much he loved and cared Israel. He was just like holding out for them to finally say, Ouch. Right. Like, help, right. you know? And, and he did. He came in and responded to that. Right. That's all he needed. That's, that's very cool. Yes, sir. Uh, to kind of tag on to a couple things that have been said thus far, the, the speaking of the spiritual descent that the Jews were in while in Israel before God redeemed them, um, there's a cool teaching that says that God revealed um, that they received an increase of light in three stages. One was the night of the actual exodus, the second was when they lifted up the song at the sea, and the third was when they received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a really neat um, sort of gematria thing that if, if you know the the names of the first six parashiot of the book of Exodus, okay. we've got Shemot, Va'era, Bo, Beshalach, Yitro, and Mishpatim. Right. If you put all those letters together in that order, they basically spell a word shohavim, which means rebellious children. Huh. Cool. Yeah, they started off rebellious, but you're right. They just had to make one comment. God intervened, um, and I think that's really what he's doing. That's if you, if you read, if you go to like the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. Boy, he has a like an unbelievably awful list of punishments. I mean, it makes you sick to read them, and um, and the whole point was to get them to say, ouch. The whole point is all God is looking for is that one I give up. hint to say, God, help. I can't do it on my own. And he'll intervene. Yes, sir. Just one comment on the concept of the the 59, the 50 or 49 gates of, you know, of, of spiritual um, descent. That's also one of the reasons, according to Hazal, that we count 
50 days right. from when we left Mitzrayim, from when we left Egypt to when we received the Torah. Because every day we were climbing back up to that highest level of spiritual attainment, at which point we're then ready, spiritually ready, we're spiritually prepared to, to have the type of encounter that we had at Har Sinai. Right. So we had descended, the, the, the proof text of this concept that we had descended to the 49th gate, if, at which point if we went one level down, we were beyond the point of redemption. Right. And so God reaches, re, you know, reaches down, as it were, and, and redeems his people, and then they begin that, that, that steady climb going back through those gates until they reached a point on day 50 when they had been purged as it were right because that 50 days of trekking to the mountain there were there were tests along the way right we right. had bitter waters we had rephidim we were attacked by amalek you know we had these trials that were purging us from you know from all of the spiritual bondage that mm -hmm. we had um, had uh, attained so yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the cool things is, uh, like Newton's law, you know, every action is an opposite reaction. Um, the sages also teach that, uh, when I read somewhere, I don't, I'm honest with you, I don't remember exactly where it was. It may have been Chabad.org. They had a comment where um, it's like, a, it's like a, a physics experiment with spirituality. They plunged to level 49, but because they'd gone 49 levels low, when they came back, they had the capacity to go 49 levels high. And so one of the things um, that um, Rabbi Nachman and his disciples are really big into is never getting depressed, never getting despairing, no matter how low you fall. Because the whole point was to say that you can, you can be redeemed at any stage. You know, maybe there's a point where you're almost, as it were, too far gone. But it's like that anything, anything you, you respond to, anything you come up with to say, God, help me, God can restore you and he can bring you back up to Amen. the same heights. Um, one comment that I'd read online uh, from, uh, I think it was one of um, the uh, Breslau group. I don't remember, unfortunately, what his name was. Um, he said something to the effect of, depression is not a sin, but what depression does, no sin can do. And the point being that one of the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination's strongest tools, is to make you give up. If you think, I'm too far gone, I can't recover, then you will stay forever in the depths. But if you realize that Hashem, as we've been saying, is sovereign, Hashem is in charge, then he can elevate you back to the highest heights and get you from that 49th level all the way up to C9. So yes, I got you, 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 and, and of course, back in here again. So thank you for that. Uh, she's got some cool comments this time. We've got to go back to the well. Yes, sir. Well, I was going to jump to chapter two. We're in? Well, we're moving subjects. quickly now. Great, yeah. <laughs> Let's wait before we change the subject. Okay. <laughs> Wait, well, we'll get into that in a second. Did you have something on the Sutra Quran? Just tell what Mr. Uppelman said about the 49 counting. Because, because it only says when you're counting uh, the Omer, you count 49. And then it says on the 50th day. Right? Oh, right. And that's the idea that you, the 49 levels of holiness, you can only get 49. Ah. Um, Hashem is at level 50. Right. No one can attain that, and so mm -hmm. that's what we so we count all the way to forty nine, and then on fiftieth day, Hashem comes down right. to us. the mountain to us and gives right. us. That's cool, very cool. So, are we? Who wants? Who was on the same subject? Yes, different subject. You're on the same subject. Same subject. We'll come to you in. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's just a really quick thought. There's a, a kind of a neat. Um, 
Hasidic thought that um, to kind of take off that you know you've descended so low and and can ascend so high is the idea that there's a phrase that is um, the truly the completely righteous person cannot stand where the uh, repentance sinner stands mm. and, and it's a it's it's a it's a level of elevation as it were that um, that is really perfectly expressed within the first couple chapters of, of this and how God elevates his mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. saying that okay you were so mired in in this lack of spirituality and this you know debauchery and this idolatry and this in this wasteland and I'm gonna make you like the most treasured mm. of all the people mm. so yeah. it's the idea that the, tr- the a completely righteous person cannot cannot even come close to where a truly repentant Sinner stands. Mm. Uh, same subject, new one. New subject. New same subject, new one. Same subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Just gotta decide. Don't know. We'll, we'll come back. Okay. The sheep. You know, there's more addressing heaven over one lost sheep. Right. That's right. Yeah. Look at the yeah. prodigal son. Right. Yeah. I, I, I have something else to It's, it's okay. Okay. No, come back. It's not one lost sheep. Back. It's one lost sheep who's been found. Right. 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 Same subject. Okay, Pete's Pete's on a roll here. Yes, sir. You got Joe in the corner too. Nice yeah. and scratchy, you scratchy. Mm-hmm. You have a comment, sir? Oh, okay. It's about it's about what Johnny just said, which is the common phrase about um, right the the Balshuva stands in a higher place than the Tzaddik, right. and how the Balsham Tov says repeatedly that every descent is for the sake of the ascent. Mm. Um, every descent is for the sake of the ascent. But and that's not on like a personal level, but on a macro level, it has to do with um, like our whole purpose in the world. Hmm. Because that phrase, where the Tzadik stands, or where the Baal stands, the Tzadik can't stand, it, it applies to our souls. Because when we started, see, and it applies to marriage, and like this, the Sheva Barachot. Hmm. Um, and so, in the Sheva Barachot, one, one of the earlier blessings, you, you thank God for fashioning the man but the woman's not mentioned. And then the next blessing, you thank him for creating a building of eternity from the man, which is talking about the woman. And then you you bless him, like, you say, like, may may he make the barren one rejoice in missing God and his children. Um, and so it's like, what does all this mean, and how is it connected to marriage, and how is it connected to the souls and the balls of and the tzaddik? And they all, they all connect, I think, in that when we start off, uh, just as a soul, for like before the creation of the world and everything, it was just all Hashem, and it was like, well, that's that's already a unity. So why would we ever want to be? Why I mean, the, it can't get better than that, right? right. That's it. And then, but um, we descend into these bodies for the sake of a better relationship with Hashem. Mm. So there's this enormous descent. So we're considered zadikim before we're make, we're before we're born. Hmm. And then we're considered a Baal Teshuva when we get born into this mortal body and return to Hashem. Hmm. But so every descent is for the sake of the ascent. And it's the same with the man and the wife in that tradition says that Hashem made Adam uh, like an Aphrodite. So he had, it was a male and a woman just in one person. United. Right. And so that's a one, that's one person. But there's no intimacy like that. 
Right. There's there's no togetherness. It's just one person. So Hashem and there's no children. That's right. the point. So the barren one in the Shemir Barakot, may the barren one rejoice in the gathering children, is talking about the Adam-Eve mix. Ah. And so to have children and to have intimacy, he had to cut off Eve and actually cause a separation between Adam and Eve so that they could join back together. And then that causes that causes children. And so that descent was also for the sake of the ascent. Zadik, Baal Teshuvah, Sol, well. That's cool. Your mother lost track of what you said, but I'm going to work on it later. <laughs> well, I'm so glad we stayed in the same subject for that one. Oh, we have a comment in the corner. It's on recording. It seems to me that there's a, a common theme here that somebody that's struggling even now, that you could be at some level. All you gotta do is cry out for God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it just seems like there's so much of a theme that Israel cried out when he needed help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there might be somebody here that is in that place. Mm-hmm. And all you gotta do is cry out to God. Mm-hmm. It'll help you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's very true. As we say in the Australia, he is close to all who call upon him sincerely. Mm. In truth, is what it says in the Hebrew. Well, there's no closer place with God than when you are oppressed or when you're in the pit and trying to climb out. Mm. Because there is no way out except through mm-hmm. Yeshua, God. Right. You know, you, and your praise to God is your link to his hand and your acclamation of his sovereignty, his his might, his ability to part the sea, just like he did back then. Acknowledging his bigness, his greatness is our link. And when you are only on your knee before him, can you get there? Just like the eye through the needle, unless you're humbled you cannot get through that eye of the needle, at least as I understand it. Hmm. And it's like, um, as uh, going off the eye of the needle thing, there's actually a, 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 a parable about that from the sages. They say that um, God is as though God is speaking. And he says, if you will repent the width of an eye of a needle, I will make an opening that you can drive a tr- basically a truck through. Uh, you, you pick, if you will repent the space of an eye of a needle in other words if you will just start the process if you will have that little bit of amona to say God I need help that's what we're talking about here if you will repent the space of an eye of a needle I will open an entrance you can drive a carriage through so in other words you start the process and Hashem will finish it um, which is exactly what we see throughout the scriptures so um, that is the trend that is the pattern um I, I want to keep track. There's like 15 people raise their hands here. So um, if I if I miss you, just jump back in. Are we on the same subject? Okay. Apparently, Pete spent the whole week studying this first chapter. I did too, so that's cool. Well, it's on that whole thing that Gloria was just saying, but it reminded me of last week's portion where uh, Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh um, because he switches, you know, he switches his hands, and it's the same. It's the same uh, thing allegorically. Is that Yosef puts the firstborn like the higher status son on Jacob's right 
and he puts the lower one on his left, and, and Jacob switches his hands. And the picture there is, and uh, Nachman says, like, Jacob just had maybe for, he, he sees the real truth, that the more honored one is the, the lower one. Mm. And the Zohar says that God wants to be honored everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he can't be honored everywhere if it's only all the perfect people honoring him, those above, as he says. So those below, when just when anyone starts to seek Hashem, or they turn to him in time of trouble, when they're like filled with all sorts of sin and everything, just the turning to him from below is what that is, and the in, impurity, that's what sustains the whole world. Mm. So that Hashem can be honored above and below. That's right. I mean, very cool. Very cool. So, um, are we still in chapter one? Or did you want to move on to the next one? Chapter two, it goes like that. Okay, go ahead. Nice. And then we'll get to chapter two on a different subject after that. I want to say, I think Hashem has opened Peter up because of his marriage. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Amen. We love Laura. Absolutely. Yes, Lori. Get us into chapter two. Well, it was mentioned, it was just kind of what we're talking about here, but um, God heard through their morning, he remembered his covenant. And verse 25 of chapter two is one of my favorite verses of the whole Torah. And the mm. article does a really good job of translating it. They translate it literally, even though it doesn't make sense in the English. Um, but it says, God saw the children of Israel, and God knew. And the word there in Hebrew is it's intimate, you know. Um, Yada is the same, the first time that's used is in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve. So that's a very intimate sense. So it's not, so that's what's cool. It's not like, and when God says, I'll come down, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like somebody just cries out, or Israel just cries out, and God's like, all right, yeah, okay, right, remember, remember okay. <laughs> I'm thinking this, like, he's intimately involved there. Like, mm-hmm. he intimately comes down, you know? I just think that's really cool, so... This Absolutely. Very cool. Mike, are you in the same subject or a new one? I guess we're calling a new one. Okay, we'll come back to you in a minute. You have the floor. Well, I'd like to go back to the last subject. I'll just point out that those of you who would like to get into Chapter 5 and 6, there may have to be a later <laughs> session after this one is over. And just to my son's point, um, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, and explained to them that Christ had ascended, and that's so important to our faith, that he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to God on high. But he couldn't ascend unless he had first descended. So, uh, I thought chapter 2 was so cool the way it opened up. Uh, first, you know, 10, 11 verses or so, you've got this woman who conceived and bore a son. That just reminds me of Messiah. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Told, you know, I've heard this before. the guy's name right? mentioned. And then it doesn't mention the father, uh, his yeah, name. True. It doesn't mention the, the mother. It doesn't even mention the sister's name. And it's not until you get to the end of it that you've got that this is a guy pulled out of the water. He's actually, he's actually put in the water just as Pharaoh had commanded. Yeah, how yeah, funny. Yeah, oops. And and that's what saved him. Yeah. And so obedience saved him. Um, I do think it's interesting that uh, we get no no uh, understanding of who he is, uh, or, you know, who his parents are or anything like that, until he's standing in front of God at the bush. Oh, yeah. He's doing it. 
your brother Aaron's on the way down. Because you don't know that it's the Moshe that you read about earlier in the in the lineage thing, because we didn't get the lineage thing yet. Right. So who is this guy? Who's the woman? Who's the sister? Who's the baby? And you know, there you go. Yeah, it's interesting. I love the the, the sages point out that part of why he, she puts him in the water is because um, back in ancient times, this may seem kind of weird to us, but back in ancient times, people relied very heavily on astrology and fortune telling and that kind of thing to figure out what's going on. Kind of the CIA of the ancient world. And so uh, astrologers <laughs> saw that the Hebrew baby's boy is going to be in the water. So she put him in the water. They didn't say he would die in the water. Um, that's actually one of the cool parts about the whole water thing. Um, the, the sages to, in the Midrash, they discuss, like, why did they choose to throw him in the Nile? And apparently one of the traditions holds that, like, Pharaoh gets together with, like, his advisors, and they decide, okay, well, how are we going to kill all these baby boys? And they start off by, like, well, we can't just kill them with the sword or whatever else because God will avenge that on us. But they go back to Genesis, and they say, well, God promised there'd never be a flood on the earth again. So we can throw him in the water, and God can't do anything. Well, the sages obviously go back and say, you know, essentially God says, just, you know, try me. Um, they come back and they uh, they do this one act, but then they didn't they didn't think about the full ramifications that they were doing because as God says, my ways are higher than your ways. He knows so much; he's so much smarter than we are. And at the end of and at the end of the story, of course, we find that in order to punish the Egyptians for throwing the baby boys into the water, God didn't need to bring the water to Egypt. He just brought the Egyptian army to the water and then dunked them all in the Red Sea. So the whole point was that God does punish measure for measure. God does exact justice. And no matter how smart or creative you are, you're not going to be able to escape it. So that's going back to what we are talking about at the beginning. This whole book is what looks to be mano a mano. It is God versus the gods of Egypt. But really, it's God versus a whole bunch of pretend gods that have no power at all when he, when he decides they doesn't want them to anymore. So... I got you, 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 you. We got. We're gonna go to a little line here. So, start and Micah. So, so, uh, so a couple, couple things about um, chapter two. So this obviously now, the the Goeli style has been introduced, right? The first redeemer, as the sages say, Moshe. <clears throat> and so, like we talked about at the beginning of class. There's these patterns, right? So if, if Moses is the first redeemer, then we should be looking at um, these stories of his life, his birth, etc., and we should expect to see some patterns that parallel to the final redeemer. Absolutely. Right? And so you should. But what's interesting is, um, verse 1, a man went from the house of Levi and took a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good. That <laughs> phrase there sounds familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Genesis. Mess, Genesis. So, you know, Hazal go back to the first point in Scripture where the Hebrew word tov, good, is used, which of course is Genesis 1, where God, um, you know, created the light and he saw that it was tov. Right. So they make the connection here and they say, ah, so there's a midrash that says when Moshe was born, that, you know, as he came into the world, that this unexplainable light, <laughs> this or hadash, right? This unexplainable light filled the room, you know. Um, and so again, if he is a type and shadow of the final redeemer, you know, it kind of reminds me of the this light 
you know, John one that signify this light that we that we see described, you know, with the birth of Messiah, right, of, of Yeshua. Um, so anyway, kind of a kind of a neat thing there. And by the way, Hatov is uh, according to Hazal is a name for the Messiah. Hmm. In other words, they they interpret this verse to say that that his mother actually named him Tov. <laughs> But it was Pharaoh's daughter that named him Moshe. Right. Okay. So, um, so that, that's kind of cool. Um, and then somebody asked me to um, also talk a little bit about this, the whole, uh, the other aspect, um, somewhat obscure aspect of his birth, which is um, we, we know that the woman that's unnamed here, we later learn that that's uh, that's Yocheled, okay, his mother. Um, Yocheled was 130 years old <laughs> when she gave birth. Because she was the daughter of Levi, literally. Wow. She was 130 Levy. years old when she gave birth. That's older than Sarah. Go right. team. Okay. Is that recorded somewhere? Well, it says he's a, well. They, they, in the scriptures, it says that Yochaved was a daughter of Levi. Well, then the sages go literally a daughter of Levi, as in like two generations back Levi. So they they just do the math and they say based on if she really is the daughter of Levi, the son of Jacob, then she'd have to be. They were they were in Egypt for two. The Bible, yeah. Yeah, just literally interpreting it. They were in Egypt yeah. for two hundred and ten years. Good point. Moshe was 80 when mm-hmm. the Exodus happens. You could go backwards. Subtract 80 from 210. 130 is when, she, because we know Yochaved came in, came down from Canaan. With, right. With, you know, she's listed in the ones that came down. So that's how we get to the 130. It's derived from other other texts. So she's 130 years old. She's a, she's beyond childbearing. <laughs> Just a little bit. So we have another. Uh, miraculous. Another miraculous birth. Okay, that's that's just par, par for the course. course. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, it's Chazal uh, say, or there's a view, there's a midrash that actually teaches it wasn't just a miracle birth in the sense that this woman who was beyond physical ability to have children gave birth. Uh, which, by the way, is another um, reason why he he was named Tov because. The, the idea was that if a woman that old was actually able to conceive, you would expect just physically and naturally there would be problems with that birth. Mm-hmm. Could she even carry a child to term? Mm-hmm. And if she could carry the child, if she, if she could conceive, if she could carry the child for any point in time, you wouldn't expect her to be able to carry it to term. And so you would expect the child to probably be born premature and mm-hmm. be sickly mm-hmm. and okay. have issues. But she carried him to term and not only that, when he when he when he arrived, he was healthy and he was strong. He was towed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Now so miracle birth in the sense that she's old and shouldn't really be able to do this, but Hazal also say that it wasn't just a miracle birth, it was a miracle conception. conception. Right. And how do they get that? They say, well, they look at the text and they say, well, a man went from the house of Levi and took a daughter of Levi, okay? And the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. 
if we knew nothing else, that would describe like a, a couple getting married and their first child is a, is a boy. Mm -hmm. But we know Probably later. Time. But we know later that this was not their first child. Right, the second child. It was their second child because or third even. Third child. Third, third, third child. Miriam. And Aaron. They had Miriam, who was the oldest, uh, who the sages reckon was about uh, five or six years old at the time Moses, Moses was born. And then Aaron was his older brother, who they reckon was about three. Okay. So why is it worded here as if this is their first child when it's right. really their third child? So would it be three miracle births? Yes. Well, yeah, technically. Yeah. So there's a midrash. This is great. This is good. There's a midrash that says when Pharaoh made the decree that all the male children were going to be destroyed, that Amram, the the father, the husband of Yochemed, said, "That's it. Forget it. I I can't. I'm not going to let this happen." So he left his wife, actually, Hazal say that he actually divorced her, left the home, lest she become pregnant, and the child ends up having, ends up being destroyed at the hand of Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. So when Amram, who was apparently a leader of the community, did this, the Midrash says that all the other um, Israelite men did the same thing. They all left their wives for fear that they would, mm -hmm. their, their wives would conceive and all these children would be destroyed. Miriam, who mm. is a Naviashi, is a young prophetess, right? She goes to her father and she rebukes her father. She says, Dad, what are you smoking? Right? <laughs> this was in the, uh, the message version. Yeah, she said it in Hebrew. I'll be doing the version. Right. Dad, what are you smoking? What you're doing is worse than the decree of Pharaoh. Right. Because Pharaoh's decree only affects male children, but what you have decreed by leaving your wife affects both male and female. In other words, there's a chance the next generation is destroyed by Pharaoh, but what you've done it's ensures right. there is no next generation. So, and, uh, and Miriam, of course, she's still a young girl. She's probably pretty cute. You know, she's probably got dad right around her finger. But nevertheless, she's probably also a prophetess, right? So she's, I'm sure she kind of, she's eloquent in delivering this. She convicts her dad. So the Midrash says her father returns to the home. And what we have recorded here in verse 1 is actually the remarriage mm -hmm. of Yochebed uh, uh, and, and Amram. And it, it was at the time of the remarriage that she conceives. But um, but it says, uh, verse 3, she she could not hide him any longer, him being... Or I'm sorry, uh, verse, verse two, 2. She conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was good, and she hid him for three months. Okay? Now, again, Hazal kind of said, this is kind of weird, what's going on here? And the Midrash says that the Egyptians... Uh, anytime there was a marriage among the Hebrews, the Egyptians would start keeping, start tracking them the clock, because they would expect that approximately nine months later there would be a child born, and they would be ready to, if it was a male, they'd be ready to, you know, take care of business as it were. So when Amram and Yocheved remarried, the Egyptians would have been. We've been expecting nine months later for the possibility of a male child to arrive. But 
she was already three months pregnant. Three months pregnant. But wait a minute. If they're just getting remarried, how could she already be three months pregnant? So here we have in the Midrashim of the Sages a discussion of the first Redeemer who has not just a miracle birth, but a miracle conception. Right. To me, that is, it's not a virgin, she's not a virgin, but she's obviously had children before. It's a miracle conception. <laughs> to me, that is incredible. Because whether the Midrash about this is true or not is totally irrelevant. Right. What's 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 important is that is that Jewish thought and the understanding of Chazal is that a miracle conception, as it pertains to the one who redeems Israel, is possible. Is possible. Cool. It's the pattern's been set. Absolutely. Great miracle happened there. Thank you. <laughs>Okay, so we're going to basically go rapid fire all the way across people who have raised their hands previously. Um, right. So we're going to go Brock and then Micah and come back to Pete and go for it. So Brock. Well, mine's really quick. If, if all that wasn't enough um, about Moses' birth, uh, Rabbi Nachman says that Moses was also born already circumcised. There we go. Amen. Um, that's a miracle. Which is a sign of, back to your toe comment, it was good. Right. It, it was a sign, a sign of the covenant that it was, it was guarded already. And, uh, and my wife pointed out that another reason why Pharaoh knew immediately that he was a Hebrew child. Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah. yeah. Did I say Pharaoh's daughter? I'm pretty sure I did. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. Knew immediately. Well, he would have been circumcised already on the eighth day. Right, either way. Yeah, either way. But, but the point being that, yeah, she's able to, like, oh, it's a Hebrew boy. Yeah. Well, that's, although the Egyptians were doing it by then, too, because Joseph told them. Right. Previously, yes. Mm-hmm. Micah. But didn't they forget Joseph at this time? Say what? Yes. I'm sorry, because by this time they forgot Joseph, so would they... Maybe they stopped. They may Actually, have been. Egyptians, yeah, history records Egyptians circumcised, started circumcising about this time. And, okay. and most didn't circumcise his son until yeah, he almost got killed for it. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Right. That's a different chapter. Okay. So <laughs> day, got a circumcised son. Yeah. Micah. Every day. Mr. Rabba might be still at the main plan of mine, so... Oh, okay, so you're good. Hey, you know what? We're all on the same plane because Hashem is teaching us the same things. It's pretty cool. So, um, no, he's done. He's done. He's already, he's, he's emptied his head and, he, and he's good. context pre-upum. Okay. <laughs> the pre-upum. Um, all right, cool. So then, let's see. I think Judah, did you have a comment? Yes. Um, I just thought the situation regarding kind of reminded me of when Yeshua was a child, you know, these um, leaders who think, you know, oh, it's this, so they're going to start an uprising, or oh, the, 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 the Messiah is born, I'm just going to, you know, nail all these male babies. That doesn't usually work out like they want it to. There's two situations. There's yeah. Situation. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't go the way that people usually think it does, does it? Um, Rebecca. Answer my question. Oh well, there we go. Bravo. Wow. So um, wow. Okay, uh, we can go home now. No wait. Except that Rob up and talking long. There we go. But Pete's got his hand raised again. Pete. It's about it's when Pharaoh decides to tell everyone to throw them in the Nile. Right. Uh, so you say it's because he, he got like a um uh, like a uh, word, word 
getting out a, a word saying that uh, the Redeemer is going to be born, like, right now, um, and he's going to die, like, he's going to have, like, a water death, basically. And so he was like, all right, well, then that's how we kill him. And he's even commanded all the Egyptians to throw their newborn newborns into the Nile as well. He's like, we'll just cover all the bases, we'll kill them in the Nile, and we'll be done. But he didn't realize that Moshe was going to die because of water, but it was because he hit the rock. <laughs> and that's why he died. Ah. And that's, so, but he didn't realize that because he get all information. Yeah. Yeah. He's hard heart, you know. Mis- mistranslation there. You know, it was it was in Aramaic. He was thinking it was Hebrew. It's you know, complicated. Laurie, you still have a comment? Okay, cool. So we're moving her on. Oh, yes, sir. Oh, wait, hang on. Whoa, 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 there's new hands. <laughs> okay, so I think I'm back over here. We'll come over there. Just a quick comment in the middle of chapter two. I thought it was really funny how the daughters say, oh, an Egyptian man delivered us from the shepherds. And it's actually, Moses describes the exact opposite of that. He is a shepherd that delivers the people out of the hand. It's a pun. Very nice. I think it, it brings up the point that... Uh, um, both Rick and Greg are constantly trying to remind us of. And, and that is that the Redeemer looked different than he really was. Right. In the same way that Joseph redeemed mm-hmm. or saved the planet, he looked Egyptian but was not. Mm-hmm. And he had to reveal himself to his people. And here you've got this Egyptian saving these people and he's not. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, we're going to see that again and again. So we're going to right, and we had a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Messiah. That's not. Kobe and then Mr. They say because um, Moses looked like an Egyptian, um, and you compare him to Joseph, Joseph was known as a Hebrew. That is why Moshe didn't get, didn't merit being born in the land of Israel, is because he looked like an Egyptian and people actually called him an Egyptian. Hmm. Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. I was actually going to say What's about the, um, this is a really cool little dialogue here, when the a wet nurse from the Hebrew woman, the baby, so the right. baby Moses refused to be breastfed from the Egyptian woman, and the, the, the commentary says um, that God said, <laughs> shell, shell the mouth. That will converse with the divine presence, drink unclean milk, <laughs> shell an Egyptian woman breast, um, uh, shall an Egyptian woman boast. I fed the mouth that converses with the divine. <laughs> so Moses refused wow. that <laughs> and was kosher from day one. There we go. <laughs> Very nice. And then last thing, I was going to nominate Greg Bartos. Greg Bartos, husband of Morgan, Greg Bartos, um, to enlighten us about the arm stretching out to grab the baby. Oh, right. It just—he really does a good job of it. Oh, come on, Greg. Hey, Greg. Oh, Greg. Well, Greg. 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 There's. A, I want to be able to quote the guy. It was a. It was a commentary on Chabad.org that talked about how the Hebrew is a little funny when the um, Pharaoh's daughter is like reaching out to get Moses out of the water. Like it's it sort of implies that she doesn't really move, but her arms extend out to receive the basket. Go, go, catch an arm. Exactly, exactly. And so tradition says that is exactly what happened. 
was that in that moment, God literally like lengthened her arms so that she could reach the basket to pull Moses out of the water. And this rabbi, which I will find and then mention because I want to be giving credit where credit is due, but he, he had said he likened rabbi that to Mendel how... Rabbi Oh, thank you. Thank you, Colby. Appreciate that. Basically, he was saying how that is how our life should be. Hmm. Even when we think that something is impossible or something is completely out of reach, if we just make the effort to go towards whatever that is, mm. God will help us with the rest of it. And he will literally do the impossible right. in order to get us to accomplish whatever it is. Mm. So it's just a cool piece of encouragement. Absolutely. That, that seems to be like the theme of the day here. Very cool, very cool. Mr. Ruffin. Well, actually, I just realized that my next comment is all the way in chapter four. So go for it, go, you gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, We're splitting the sea in 20 minutes. <laughs> so this is, so chapter 4, this is, uh, you know, Moses having this dialogue with Hashem at the burning bush, right? And he, you know, Hashem says, hey, you know, I heard my people, I'm sending you, you're going to go bring them back, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we get to verse 10, and it says, um, it says in English, Moshe replied to, to Hashem, Please, my Lord, I am not a man of words, not since yesterday, nor since the day before, nor since you first spoke to your servant, etc. Okay? And, that, and in the Hebrew it says, I'm not a man of devarim. Hmm. Okay? So he's, so, I, you know, I always understood that, that he, you know, was, had maybe, a, maybe a, some sort of a speech impediment or whatever, he just was not very articulate or, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And he was you trying to use that as an excuse to, to you know, try to convince God that, look, you got the wrong guy. I can't go down there and say anything, okay? Now, what's interesting is um, in the Midrash Tankuma, which is another, another famous Midrash, they, they pick up on this phrase where he says, I am, I am not a man of Devarim, right? And they juxtapose that with verse 1 of Parsha Devarim, <laughs> where it says, these are the Devarim that Moshe spoke to all Israel <laughs> on the other side of the Yarden concerning the wilderness, concerning the Arabah, opposite the Sea of Reeds, etc. And then the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, then go, you know, Moshe goes on for 30 chapters He's reciting got He's got some words. the entire Torah to the people while he's standing next to the Jordan River opposite Jericho in the Arabah. So, wait a minute. How could he say over here that he, ha he is a man with no Devarim and then we have an entire book where it's just Moses <laughs> delivering Devarim without I think I'm problem. No notes. I think I'm Tavia. For a man slow speech, he sure didn't want to This is why I love Hazal, because they had taken the time to not only you know, kind of see the, the, the juxtapositions, but then they, they asked the question, how can this be? Hmm. Well, according to this Midrash in Midrash Tankuma, what Moses was saying, because Moses came from Egypt, he came from the courts of Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. He came from the court of Pharaoh. He knew how things operated there. 
what he was saying was not that he had he was incapable of speaking per se like some sort of speech impediment or whatever what he was saying is hey fair, you know Egypt of course at this time is the world superpower right just like the United Nations is situated in our country as the as the world superpower you know Egypt was like the place where all nations would you know would kind of come for counsel and whatever and he said in the, you know, the the midrash says that you know in the courts of pharaoh they speak all 70 languages mm. of the world mm. i can't do that i don't speak those languages mm. so how can i go down to egypt and 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 make these declarations and and whatever i can't speak all the languages necessary to communicate it so when we get to chapter 1 in the book of Devarim, it says these are the Devarim of Moshe. The same Midrash says, you know what? Moses spoke the entire book of Deuteronomy in all the 70 languages of the earth. Cool. Okay? So what you have here is essentially, and it's interesting that the, um, that the, the reading today from the Apostolic yeah. Scriptures right. was about speaking in tongues. tongues. Yeah. What we have here is basically Moshe saying, I can't speak in tongues, known tongues. Mm -hmm. But by Deuteronomy, he is able to. Right. Cool. What is the, where does he gain the ability to do this? At Har Sinai. Ah. Because at Har Sinai, the tradition is that God came down and spoke the ten words in all the seventy known languages of the world, and then Moses spent um, it, you know, any, depending on your reckoning, anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty days total on the mountain in the presence of Hashem. So much so that his face, you know, was shining and all that. That at that point, the spiritual gift of tongues hmm. was imparted. To Moshe, cool. Um, and so you have this pretty cool um, midrash that sort of connects these two ideas of he's a man with no devarim here, and then over here he's a man with plenty of devarim. <laughs> and how does what, what happened? Abundant has the Hebrews in Egypt. Devarim gadol. Well, since we've heard, moved into four, we skipped over three. But just real quickly on on the name of God being found in three. And uh, if you have a if you have a good nick, I shall be as I shall be. If you have a good nick, you know how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they don't tell you how to pronounce it, but it's a real name. Um, actually, when you get, uh, I wanted to get onto another messianic thing. Actually, right after this portion where where he says, "I'm, I'm a man of, of no speech," God sends him on his way. He agrees. He first says, "Don't send me." Essentially, says, "Don't send me. Send the Messiah." And and the response is, God's angry and sends him anyway because he's the pattern. Mm -hmm. But then he puts him immediately. It says he puts him on the famous donkey. The yeah, famous the donkey. donkey. So the, the donkey. donkey. So the donkey, the famous donkey. It's the same donkey from from that who's who's named and created. Uh, before before the foundation of the world, it's the same donkey that Abraham carries uh, Isaac uh, uh, up to the Mount Moriah on. It's the famous donkey, as we all know, the famous donkey, the donkey, and its most famous rider is Mashiach. Mm -hmm. And 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 all in the Gudnik it says, "This is the guy. This is the donkey that Messiah will ride." It's talking about Zechariah. 
So when we recognize when we recognize this this uh, uh, pattern of redeemers, you know, it's there's no there's no accident, and it's not just us, you know, people who have a knowledge of the apostolic scriptures that go, oh look, it's a donkey. It's 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 Judaism's deepest thinkers say, no no, this is the donkey. Well, because it literally reads the donkey. The donkey. <laughs> the, the definite article. The famous donkey. Huh. In Hebrew, huh means the. That's actually there, which is why the sages go, wait a minute. Because if it said they brought word a donkey, that'd be like, oh, well, they just they wrote a donkey. That's just, you know, he drove a BMW, whatever. But this is the donkey. It's like the famous donkey. The one, you know, the bond car, the, you know, whatever. It's like the one. It's not a talking donkey, but it's the donkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an old donkey is what donkey that's that is. Right. That's an old donkey there. Yes, Mrs. Um, the first part of chapter four, um, with the signs that Moses Yeah. I, there was three signs. Yeah. And one being the staff and then the leprosy hand and then being clean. And then the, the last one was the blood. So I saw a, a picture of Yeshua in all three of those as okay. well, with the staff being being Later, we see the staff being held up with the serpent on right, it, right. the salvation people. So, of course, we see Yeshua on the tree, um, right. you know, great being our salvation. Absolutely. And also Yeshua healing leprosy. Right, yeah. And um, then the last one being the blood, I mean, the Passover, the blood there, but also, um, I mean, the blood that Yeshua shed for us. Absolutely. Very cool. Very true. That same portion. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If I can just Absolutely. That excellent comment. That <laughs> yeah. Woo! Pulling the matter card. Because it because that um, that not only ties into um, ties into Messiah, but also um, ties back to the comment that I was just making about the Devarim, right? Okay. Because there's a there's a passage in uh, in Yeshayahu, Isaiah, chapter 35, uh, that starts, let's see here, where do I want to start? Uh, Be strong, do not fear, behold, your God will come, uh, will come with revenge, with d divine retribution. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame man will skip like a gazelle, and the tongue, okay, the, the speech, of the mute will sing glad song for water will have broken out in the wilderness in streams in the Arava. Hmm. Okay? That hmm. verse, that's verse 6 of chapter 35, going back to that Midrash about how Moses, in essence, God gave him the gift of tongues, as it were, to be able to speak and orate in all these known languages. They say that this verse in, in Isaiah 35, 6 is hearkening to that actual thing because when in Deuteronomy, when he's, he begins to deliver Devarim, where is he? He's standing by the water in the Arabah. And verse 6 says, you know, that uh, be the water will have broken out in the wilderness and streams in the desert, preceded immediately by the tongue will sing, will, right. will speak. Right, okay. But what's cool about this, you know, when when Hashem is having this dialogue with Moshe and Moshe is saying, well, what, how are they going to believe me, right? And he's, you know, the whole thing, well, what do you have in your hand, staff, right? And and then he says, take your hand, you know, put it in your bosom, 
it's leprous, takes it back so he heals it. You know, God makes something leprous, heals it, all of that. And then when he says, look, hey, okay, that's all fine and dandy, but I, I, I'm a man of no devarim. And then what does God say? He says, who makes the eye to see? Mm-hmm. Who makes the ear to hear? And who makes the mouth to speak? Mm-hmm. I do. Right. So when you, if you fast forward now to um, the Gospels, and we have Yeshua, who is the Goel Israel, he's the Redeemer, you know, um, in in the pattern of Moshe, and we have um, John the Immerser, who's in jail now, and he sends one of his disciples to Yeshua, and he says, "Hey, mm-hmm. you know, because let's face it, I mean, John's kind of, you know, he's, he's had a, he's had." It's a tough He's thrown in prison. He's about to be decapitated. Yeah, it's not going well. He sends a disciple. He says, are you the one that we're waiting for, or should we look for another, right? And what is Yeshua's response? He says, go tell John that the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk, and the blind see. If you want to know whether or not Yeshua was divine, he's basically saying, I do what God I do this because apparently according to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, those Nobody are things that only yeah. Hashem yeah. 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 Cool. yeah. And if you go back into John chapter um, I believe it's uh, nine. Um, and talking about the bl- blind man, uh, one of the things is he's blind from birth. Right. And the the the, says, the, the, the elders, the elders come up and they go, they get, they call his parents in, yeah. and it's like, are you is he really blind from birth? Because giving someone sight who'd never had sight before was a huge deal. What's cool about that is that same passage is kind of like tucked in and around the discussion of the light of the world. Which kind of comes back to what we talked about earlier with Moshe or having a special, or, or, a special or, 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 light around him. Um, if you read the book of John and think about Moses while you're reading, you will see a lot of parallels between Yeshua and Moshe throughout that whole book. Um, one thing real quick on, the, on the, the hand, the hand sliding in and out. The sages point out that he turns leprous. And they think, well, that's an interesting disease. It doesn't show up very often. Why would God turn his hand leprous? It's like, whoa, 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 don't worry, put it back in. Okay, that was scary. But he does this, and they say that the reason why it turns leprous is because right before that, Moses says, they will not believe me and they will not heed my voice. And so they say it's Lashon Hara. He's speaking evil about the people of Israel. He accuses them that they will do something wrong before they even had a chance to do it. So he speaks evil of them to God. And so, temporarily, he's punished, as it were, to have leprosy, which is the punishment for Lashon Hara. So, means we should be really which, careful about the things we say. Which is also the punishment that his sister gets. His sister gets, Miriam, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Mrs. Upham pointed out that all of those things match up with Yeshua. They also match up with Moses. You got, as you pointed out, the serpent on the, the pole. You've got the, the parting of the Red Sea and the, and the blood in the Nile. But then you've also got the, um, you've also got the leprosy with Miriam, who is healed of that. She's That's temporarily right. Right. sick. Um, which is that's pretty cool. It's a lot of there's a lot of uh, foreshadowing, so to speak. And Aaron's listening to it. Say what? And Aaron for listening. Not yes. Just the speaking, but he was listening to his sister. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron gets in trouble for for listening to the Lashon Hara. Absolutely. Um, 
we're going to kind of get towards the end here because I know we're wrapping up our time. Um, chapter 5. Uh, so he finally gets out. He leaves. He goes back to Egypt. And the Redeemer is back. He has this little showdown with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes, Who are you? And who is this God you're talking about? Double the work, basically. And um, the, poor, the, poor, uh, the poor Jews come back to Moses and they go, Whoa, 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 whoa. You said we'd be redeemed. You had us all excited. And then, poof, like, now it's twice as hard. Obviously, this, this can't possibly be, like, what, what's supposed to happen. And Moses gets upset. He comes back to God at the end of chapter 5 and goes, God, you, you said you would redeem this people. That's not what's happening. And um, the sages actually point out that Moses kind of oversteps his bounds here. Um, even, even though God wants to hear what we're thinking, there is some points where we shouldn't say certain things. And... Um, he, uh, but the point, just trying to get at, is that it's not unusual. If you, if you, if you, if you, uh, in the sages' comp discussions and, and um, even more modern sages, uh, like the sages of Breslau, you read their comments about things like the the Yetzer Hara and fighting back that evil inclination, trying to become more religious. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning of your talk is very slowly learning about the Shabbat and and trying to incorporate things or whatever else. Well, the the, the Judaism actually encourages that. Because they, they recognize that when you try to make movements in righteousness, whatever that may be, could be in halakha, could be in trying to purify your thoughts or take care of your speech or whatever, you're going to get resistance. You're going to get really intense resistance because the Yetzahara is going to be um, fighting as hard as it can to discourage you because the whole goal is to get you off the path. You started walking in this way, and if you had that resistance at the very beginning, you can give up and just be done with it. And so basically that's what we have here. Moses comes in, God's promised to do all this, they've got miracles happening, Pharaoh says, no, doubles the work, and now everyone's about ready to give up. And I, um, the last verse of our portion this morning was awesome. I mean, I don't know, like, if, you've, if, you're, if you're into, like, you know, superhero movies or things like that, there's always that climactic moment, that moment when the superhero finally, like, especially if it's an origin story, the superhero realizes, whoa, like, I can do a lot here. Like, there's that moment where all of a sudden the guy goes, you know, realizes that they have power that they didn't, they, they finally tapped into, you know? And so it's like, there's that, that rise up, that's, I'm going to face down the enemy, we're going to fight it. Well, God, who doesn't need any revela uh, a revelation of his understanding, he knows who he is, he knows what he can do. He, he presents a revelation of sorts to Moses, kind of like that. Moses comes and he complains and he says, but you did not rescue your people. This is not what's supposed to happen. God responds by saying, now you will see what I shall do to Pharaoh. For through a strong hand will he send them out and with a strong hand will he drive them from his land. The sages go and they key in on the word now because they say that throughout history, the wicked prosper and the, and the righteous are punished. Like the, what, what happens? Why, is, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do wicked people have so much success? One of the most wealthy men and most influential men in American history was Henry Ford, and he was a Nazi. He was a Nazi lover. So the question is, huge why, does this, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And they say, according to tradition, and actually have some psalms and things to back this up, they say that the reward for the wicked is in this life so that they can have all of their reward now and get nothing but punishment in the world to come. And the reward for the righteous is held until the world to come so they receive all of their punishment now because God is just so you do something wrong you have to suffer for it 
So the righteous suffer now, so they can get only reward in the world to come, and the wicked get their reward now. So what God is saying is he's saying in the same, in a similar concept, a similar idea, that this is all an illusion. This is not really the way that it works. And just as at the end of time, you know, we are going to see the wicked punished and the righteous rewarded, God says, now, to Moses, now you will see. And according to uh, Rabbi Gimpel, he says that the Red Sea, one of the miracles, one of the reasons why the people of Israel were elevated to prophecy that was transcendent, something we haven't seen for a nation in history, pretty much, is because of the, of the Red Sea, they saw God reward the wicked exactly, measure for measure. This Egyptian broke this Israelite's arm, his arm is broken in the sea. You know, that kind of thing. They saw perfect justice. Um, and so, basically... I just love this moment here at the end of chapter 6 because it seems so hopeless at the end of chapter 5. But then God says, no, now I am going to step up and I am going to do what I said and everybody just needs to get out of the way. <laughs> so, um, any other comments, last comments? Yes, sir. I'll just go back to chapter 4 again, Messianic Connection, where God himself says to uh, Moshe, you're going to go to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh you'll be as Elohim. You will be as God. That's not God. Uh, so, that, so the notion of you know, the fear of idolatry, uh, I mean, God himself says it. And he says it in such a way that uh, we could not repeat it for fear of idolatry. <laughs> um, so, but it does give us a pattern then of the, of the future Redeemer. And the Redeemer hmm. will be, to the, to the God of this world, will be as God. Hmm. Yeah, I have to say, as reading through this, um, we've been talking about, I mean, they, Jonathan pointed this morning about um, standing up for Kiddush for the, the massacres that occurred in, in France this past week. Um, the newspaper, one of the guys who was killed was a Jew. And then the Jewish supermarket or the kosher market. Um, and, and it's throughout history, you see this over and over and over again. The people who are attacked, the people who are, who are betrayed, the people who are brutalized, the people who are kicked out of cities and places are God's people over and over and over again. But at the end of time, God will reward the wicked. And, and I tell you... It, it, when when the battle lines are drawn, you do not want to be looking God in the face because that means you are on the wrong side. So, we can close this out. One, oh, what, one more comment. Or one more question. Oh, sure. Um, why get uh, God so angry with Moses when he said, "Oh, I, I cannot speak and I will not go"? And why is he using this kind of rhetorical question to introducing Aaron? I mean, it's not a Kind of not. Well, it's a kind of rude to say. Yeah, what about what about Aaron? Uh, why is say hey? Why don't you go to Aaron and, and take a water? Uh, how the sense is built? Uh, how the sentence is built? Uh, doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think first off, um, God's upset because Moses has thrown up one excuse after another. I mean, God's a very patient, patient one with us, and um, in this particular story, he he lets Moses go through all of his excuses. He goes through this, he does this, but God doesn't make mistakes. God didn't pick Moses and go, you know what, Moses, you're right. You know, you really aren't the right guy for this job. My bad. I'll talk to somebody else. So, like, <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen. And so Moses' insistence in saying it's not me, that the sages say it came from his humility, that he really, he didn't feel capable of being the redeemer of Israel at that time. 
But, but God saying, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. I am the one who decides these things. And, and so he gets upset and angry with, with Moses because he keeps, um, as my dad likes to point out, he keeps asking the same questions, basically. He keeps throwing up problems. And it's like, we've already addressed this. You are the guy that I've chosen. You need to do this. So in the same way, it's like God is patient with us. But if, if like, it's like with your kids or with, you know, it's a student. The student were to say, I keep asking same questions on the same topic. It's like, look, we covered this already. You know what I said. If I repeat it again, it's the Shut same up. thing I already said. You know, you're going to have to just either agree with me or move on. Um, going back to the other thing about Aaron, I don't think it's so much rude. I think what Hashem is trying to do with rhetoric, a rhetorical question there, is to get, first off, I think it helps, it helps, the, um, uh, it helps I think, for people to own their answers, to own what they think. And so instead of just telling Moses, Aaron's a good one, we'll pick him, he says, what about your brother Aaron? Now Moses knows Aaron. Moses has spent a long time with Aaron. So I think that Moses is think, it would, be, would be able to think, oh yeah, yeah, Aaron is a pretty good, 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 so pretty Moses, good speaker. Moses knows that Aaron is his brother before that house. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because Moses, I mean, I would assume so. Moses grows, is, uh, is weaned. <laughs> He's aware of his he, he, Jewishness. He has, he has some time as a small child. Um... In the family, Aaron is older, so he would have grown up with his brothers. It's possibly could have forgotten some things. We don't have all the story in the background, um, but I do think that. Um, but we watched the movie. Yeah, yeah. Moses probably watched the movie too. But I do think that um, in the in the in the in the in the book in the story, and also in the book of Hebrews, it makes it very clear that Moses knows that he's not Egyptian. Moses knows he's a Hebrew. But does he know that Aaron is his brother? Well, I don't. It says there are a lot of Hebrews. Right, true. Now that's true, but I think I think that based on the fact that God asks him, "What about Aaron, your brother?" that he doesn't know. Yes, mom. Well, if, if he was taken back to his mother to be fed, and probably to at least three or possibly four, and Aaron is an older brother, he would have been in the home at that time. So he what, would have. Was known. she in his own home, or did his yeah. mother came? No, uh, it looks to like the he went, Looks like he went to his home. It says the because child she was brought brought her. Yeah. Or so she the brought the child, child brought the mother her to the child. The child brought her. The the daughter. Miriam. The daughter brought the mother. No, the woman. No, it says she took him back. But it says later at the end of the story. That was the original um, vetting. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we do this? Okay, you seem to be okay. Yeah, yeah. It says she took him back. Yeah, but then, but in yeah, at the end, at the end of the uh, account. Yeah. So it's not till later. So he would have been in the home with Miriam and Aaron. Right. I think one of the, uh, real quick while I'm talking, sorry to my son. Go ahead. Um, I think one of the reasons why God brings Aaron to Moses was because he didn't have any way to contact him mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And God, and Aaron is so afraid, Moses is so afraid of doing the wrong thing and not being able to do it. God's already planned help. And God's mm-hmm. already told him and already sent him on the way. So that when he goes through all his arguments, he says, but I haven't left you alone. I brought someone that's going to help you through this. So it's just one more affirmation to me, personally. Okay, so that, that makes sense why he used a strange sentence to bring it in, saying, hey, don't you see my great plan? Right, yeah. And, and, and according to that, since he said he's already going to meet you, Right. He probably summoned him before even this conversation. Right. Exactly. Right. He was already on his way. Like yeah. three weeks ago. Yeah, and that's the thing is, if you look at <laughs> the fact, the fact if you, that Moses was not qualified to do it, 
is exactly why he's qualified. That's exactly yeah, right. In other words, and, and that's why he's the fit vessel, because he's incapable of doing it himself, right. which and is he, and he knows why it. God can be glorified through him. Right, that's true. The only true. one that should be present well, is one who doesn't want to be present. <laughs> as, as we've heard in the... Uh, like what, Washington. As we heard in the, the hot tower portion today, Isaiah said, you know, I fashioned you in the womb for this purpose. I, I knew you before anyone else knew you, and the same thing happened with Quebec. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Colby. So, Alshon when he was um, looking for a, a bridegroom for his daughter, sent one of his servants to this promising young man and to test his tour knowledge. And the first question is like, well, can, can you just give me a little like background your tour knowledge? And the future bridegroom said, I've never known, I don't know, and I'll never know. So the servant of Baal Tov brought that answer back to, to the Baal Tov, and the Baal Tov started rejoicing. He's like, that's exactly who I want to marry. My <laughs> and then he probably ended up dunking him in a long study after that. <laughs> well, he was super wise. He just didn't see himself as that. Right. Yeah, it's true. Humility. Yeah, going back to humility, going back to recognizing what you really are. And then, as we started with this whole portion, the very beginning, talking about the, the deepest point you can be at, God can still save you. But, it do, but I think the way that God tends to work, generally speaking, is he expects us to start to reach for him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and the, the, uh, the prodigal son leaves, and the father rejoices when he returns, but the father doesn't go looking for the prodigal son. The prodigal son had to start that journey back before there is that reconciliation. And I think that we see that with this, with this concept and without the whole idea of repentance, you have to start with your own heart. You have to make that first nudge, that first cry for help, and then God will open you know, oceans to, to get you out. But there is a step that you have to take, and that's what God is, um, that's the way that he structures his response. Not that he can't do it with, with anything he needs your help by any means, but that's just the way that he tends to work. Good? Pray for us. I got a question from uh, at least one of our guests as to why I was wearing a handgun, <laughs> and uh, and I do want to openly and publicly thank the men who carry during our meetings in order to protect the flock. And they don't just carry; they practice on your behalf. Amen. Amen. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we are so grateful that you do use vessels which are not prepared that are insufficient, and you make them sufficient, Father. We thank you for the parallels and for the wonderful doubling of stories to teach us about the first Redeemer and the final Redeemer. Father, we pray for that final Redeemer's return soon and in our days. Father, that uh, he would bring peace, lasting peace on the planet. Father, that he would slay your enemies. Father, I pray that you would find each of us faithful to study your word, to show ourselves approved unto you, to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you, that we would create a strong delineation between your people and the people of the world. Father, I thank you for all those who have come today to study, to pray, to stand before you, the king of the universe, and to be counted as one of your people. I pray a special blessing on each one who has come. I pray, Father, that you would grant us peace and shalom for the remainder of this day. 
And we pray these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, Adonai, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.